is where we sit and talk through a little bit about where we have been and uh, where we are going. And so I want to open this morning by sharing something with you uh, about the book of Proverbs. For those of you that have been a Christian for a while, you'll know the book of Proverbs is really a wonderful set of teachings in the Old Testament, packed with very short, I would almost even call them pithy at times, um, but, but deeply powerful wisdoms. I don't ever want you to think when you read a proverb that the, the succinctness of what has been written uh, really denigrates the power and the authority of what they say. The, the Proverbs are books that is a book that really speaks about the wisdom of God and how we can learn it and grow in it. And so the beautiful thing about the Proverbs is that when followed, they give us the ability to have a, a deeper sense of meaning and fulfillment in our lives. Wisdom is personified in the Bible. And what that means is it's spoken about as if it's like a person, something that we can get to know very personally. And what wisdom is, is really beginning to understand and know the mind and the heart of God. And so when we dwell in God's wisdom, we start to live like God and we start to know God more deeply. And that begins to create a deeper level of, of fulfillment and meaning in our lives, worth and value. And so uh, the Proverbs really are a, a set of teachings that give us this ability to know how life works best the way God designed it. So today I want to read one of the wisdoms found in Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, And I'll paraphrase it here. It says, where there is no vision, people perish. And the idea behind that is that where there is no vision, people live unrestrained lives, meaning rather than being focused and disciplined and accomplishing something and moving towards a, a singular or particular objective vision, there is an unrestraint in a person's life. I said this a few weeks ago. It's sort of like the difference between uh, a rifle bullet, singular shot, or a shotgun blast. And at our church, we're concerned about the sniper bullet, particular vision of value. But it then says in a contrarian way, but blessed are those who keep the law. Blessed are those who follow the ways of God. And so what we begin to see here is that vision is directly connected to, to the ways of God. And while we'll talk about some particular applications of that today, make no mistake about it. Vision at restoration means that we are a people who are trying to seek, pursue, and follow God with all that we are. So the idea behind that proverb is that when people have nothing to strive for in life, they will likely drift towards apathy in their lives. They will live, super important thing I want to say here, and a, a substantial problem in our modern world. They will begin to live for the moment at the expense of the eternal. And what I would say is that it's important to, to cherish the moment, but never at the expense of the eternal. We even have secular wisdom that, that highlights this, seeing the forest from the trees, you know, the big picture. We don't ever want to get to the place where we're so myopic and looking down at our toes that we can't see the path God has laid before us. And this is certainly going to be true on an individual level, meaning for each one of us, this proverb means something. God has a, a plan and a purpose for us this year. But in a compounding way, if you begin to understand the theology of God's church, who, who and what God says his church is, us here, that problem compounds when a bunch of people who love God get together under one roof and try to serve him. In a very real way, in a very true way, a church family is one big body made up of many individual people. Each one of us brings a collective strength. And let's be frank, we all have collective weaknesses. And we bring these to the table. And through this, God creates a common family at a table called a church. And so this proverbial wisdom is what I'd like us all to have in mind today as we prepare our hearts to receive the talk I'm about to give you. Because today is the day in the life of our church where we have our vision provision talk. And this annual talk is like our State of the Union address, or to put it in biblical terms, our State of the Local Church in God's Kingdom address. In other words, we talk a little bit about us today. We do this twice a year, on Vision Sunday and on our anniversary Sunday on October 10th. This is the day where we remind ourselves of where we're coming from and where God has us going. And every time we give this talk, it's important. Every time we give this talk, it's important. But this year, I want to say it's, it's kind of a little more important. 
because we are now firmly into the sixth year of restoration. Restoration will turn seven years old in October. And what this means is, is we're, we're on the other half of the, the five-year life cycle. We're, we're looking now, believe it or not, it's kind of hard to even sense this in my own mind, but we, we can see that we're 10, 10 years, not too far down the road. And so this is an amazing season in the life of a church because we're on the side of time that firmly dec- declares, please hear me when I say this, th- this is not some naive attempt to say we are a perfect church, but it firmly declares that restoration is healthy, that God has used us, that we have grown, and I deeply believe God wants to continue to use us. Our talk today is an evidence of how God has blessed us in the past, and I believe if we remain faithful to the task of making disciples, that is why we exist. We don't exist to fill rooms. We don't exist to just have worship services. We exist to, to make disciples. And what I mean by that is we exist to help men and women find Jesus, know Jesus, grow in the truth in the grace of Jesus, and live for Jesus. That is why our church is here, and that's why I say What we do here is one element of that, but it far jumps the walls, the boundaries of this room. In fact, the movement of God takes place typically outside of this room. So this is an amazing season in the life of our church. And I do believe with all my heart that if we are faithful to the task of disciple making, God will continue to bless us. And so today's talk defines much of what we'll be focusing on this year and certainly some rhythms for the next years. And keep in mind, when I say we're going to talk about this stuff, Obviously, I mean, I wish that I could talk to you guys for like 10 hours on Sunday morning. All of you are saying, we are glad, Anthony, that you do not try to talk to us for 10 hours on Sunday morning. So when, I, when we talk about these action steps and these ideas, you can see this as getting to know a new, it's a new dialogue. It's not that we're going to unpack everything in detail today, but we're going to begin to introduce ideas and thoughts, many that will not be new to you, as we begin to pray, plan, and process for the future. And that's why it's so important for in 2017 for us to take time to examine every area of our own lives to see if we're where God wants us when it comes to being a disciple. That's where it begins. You can't make a disciple if you are not a disciple. So we want to get to before God and each other and ask God if we're where where we need to be individually. And we have to recognize that our individual posture before God shapes a corporate identity in this room. It shapes a family. Think about your own family or your friends. You know, we, there are five people in my family and a dog now. I'll explain that in a few weeks. It's a long story how that happened on Monday, but we got a dog now. We woke up Monday shopping and Monday now we had a dog. And so uh, if you think about the individual people in your family, right, uh, it, it creates a certain dynamic. That's why all families have different feels and vibes. Our family has a, a vibe. And so it's important that we as individuals become a collective church family because we're on the side of history. Hear me here. And here's why I'm giving this talk where a church family begins to develop a long-term culture. We already have cultures and rhythms here, but this is when they begin to cement. And what I'm saying here is we want to make sure that as we cement our habits, they're good habits. And I'm thankful to say we have had really good habits. So this isn't a talk about what we're not. This is more a talk about affirming who we are and asking God to continue to bless that. So in light of this year, we're going to focus on three basic but incredibly important priorities, which I will share with you at the back end of this message and again next week. And I want to be very honest about this. I'm going to re-preach this same sermon next week. Why? Not because Pastor Anthony doesn't have more to say. If you know me personally, you know I always have a lot to say. But what I want to say here is that the more I got to thinking about this and the more I talk to people in our body, right now a sizable portion of our church is not here. You know, that happens. Not everybody's here on a Sunday. And a sizable portion of our church right now, family, they're in other rooms right now serving our children and working on hospitality and breaking stuff down. And so this message is critical. And I want us to have two weeks for those that are not here to come back and hear it. But I also want to issue you a pretty important challenge. In the Western world, which is the world we live in, we are consumed. I've said this a lot. We're consumed with accumulating new information. And so what I want you to think about here 
is I want you to think about a word that we don't use a lot. And the word is meditate. That's a biblical word. What I want you to do if you're here and you're planning on coming back next week, which I hope you are, is to take what we talk about today and I want you to meditate on this, to pray on this, and to ask God what your response is in this. Maybe some of you will have a response this morning. That's possible. But some of you might need some time to think and pray about this. So it is super important over these next two weeks that we essentially rally around the table and dwell and press into these ideas. Okay? So this morning we're going to talk about some of the big picture steps of what it means to be a church that practices a culture of helping people to find and grow in Jesus, to make disciples. And I want to talk about what it will require from each one of us to make that happen. Because remember, even though ultimately the church belongs to God, this is his church, just like every other church in the world is. The truth is, is it's our body to steward. That's an interesting statement. This is God's church, but he has given us the task of stewarding it and representing him well in it. And in the truest sense, and just like in a family, we all have a major role to play in keeping the family healthy. So in literature, if you read anything or you've watched films, this is always kind of fitting in a movie theater, um, Every story is a good story for a few reasons. The primary reasons are that in it there are main characters. And if you watch every movie or every, if you read, read every book that has a story that captivates people, what happens is there's always a main character or characters and a great obstacle or obstacles to overcome. And in literature, this obstacle is called the antagonist. You know, it kind of makes sense. It's the person or the thing that's, that's keeping something from moving forward. And a restoration story, before we lay out some of our steps, the protagonist, we'll get to that, I want us to make sure that we understand what the antagonist is going to be in creating a more robust culture of disciple-making here. Keep in mind, I say more robust. I'm not saying this isn't happening. I'm saying, how do we deep into a healthy, a press into a healthy rhythm and build a deeper level of love, affection, and care for it? I want to be sure we're all clear on the problem. This is the problem Jesus lays out for us in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. We all have a problem that we will individually and corporately have to overcome before we can get to the place that I believe God wants us. And so uh, the first idea I want to talk about this morning is this, to be a church that God uses to change the world. And by change the world, I don't necessarily mean we're going to change all the seven continents. But I mean in our sphere of influence here and in the places where God sends you and when God brings us people, we have a space that God wants us to change. We have a space that God wants us to illuminate with the grace of his son. So when I say change the world... There is a grandiose idea here, but there's also the reality of the way we change the world can't just be ambiguous. It has to happen when you walk out of this room. And for many of us, it'll probably start happening in this room. To be a church that God uses to change the world, we must get comfortable with hard work and sacrifice. Matthew 9, 35 through 38. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep, he says, without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So here's what's happening, right? You have Jesus. He is doing what Jesus does. He is living his everyday life, and he is trying to find places to break God's kingdom onto the earth in it. He's working, he's talking, he's, he is walking around villages, and he is looking for places to, to be the manifest presence of God on earth. And something happens in him right here that really should be something that happens to us. And it's going to be connected to the second thing I want to talk about today. When we talk about a passion and a burden for those who don't know God. He sees people very far from God. And he is broken because of it. And he realizes they are sheep without a shepherd. And from him, this, this incredible 
burden is 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 laid on his shoulders one we know that he'll die for eventually right on the cross but it's a burden that we need to make sure we have in our own hearts but before we even get to the burden i want you to see what jesus says he looks around and he says man the 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 there are lots of sheep here without a shepherd and then he immediately goes on to tell us what the antagonist is going to be for those shepherd actually finding a sheep uh, excuse me those sheep finding a shepherd here jesus teaches that farming right he uses this idea of the field He says, farming is the best way to describe the challenges the church family will face as we seek to serve God and help the shepherdless find a shepherd. Let me explain what I mean by this. Unless some of you are farming today, which I'm unaware of. I don't know of a singular singular farmer in our church. But uh, years ago, my son and I started watching a fascinating show. And it, was, it followed a family. I don't know if, you've, if you keep up with media at all. I do to a certain degree. But there are like seasons of things that, that seem to dominate television. And I can tell you for the past like four or five years, Alaska has been like on just about everything. And so there's been 100 shows on Alaska. And we started watching for a couple of years. We don't really watch it anymore. But it was this show about a family in Alaska that practiced a subsistence lifestyle. Uh, for almost 80 years. And basically what that means is they live off the land and hunt off the land. And this is pretty serious stuff because unlike some of us today, and I know there's kind of movements for homegrown food and local stuff, and that's all great. But at the end of the day, like if you plant some lettuce on your roof and it doesn't work out, you can always go to Publix and get some, right? Uh, in this case, uh, if they plant some lettuce or they don't find a buffalo or a moose, then they die. That's what happens, right? So this is pretty serious. There is no like grocery store to run to. And so although we started watching the show for entertainment purposes, God really showed us something, or at least me. It was the first time I really had uh, an in-depth look at day-to-day agrarian farming. I studied all this stuff in seminary, and I understand the ancient Near Eastern cultures and how they farmed. And sure, I'm generally familiar with farming, but I've actually never seen images, at least consistent images, of people farming. It was crazy. The kind of what we read about in the Bible. Okay, so in the Bible, farming like this is one of the most common metaphors used to describe what our work for the local church looks like. And unfortunately, the vast majority of us today are unfamiliar with this metaphor because we're completely disconnected from it, because we have incredible modern amenities. So, for example, if I decide that I want to eat pig on Sunday, okay, in the modern world, there's a grueling set of steps I have to follow to make that happen. For starters, I have to get up very early, most likely on a Saturday, and I have to dress properly for the outdoor weather. And this isn't easy to do, especially with the harsh Florida weathers, uh, Florida winters that we have, right? So what happens here is it's very cold here, uh, and depending on where I'm going to hunt my pig, uh, sometimes I have to get up way ahead of other people and quietly creep around other hunters so they don't see me to get to my meat first. And after all that, at some point, I've got to be gutsy enough to make the kill, to scope out what I'm looking for, and I have to have the guts to brave the challenge. I've got to make it from the front end of Publix to the meat rack in the back and pick up a pack of pork chops, bring it up front and pay $9 for it, right? Now, you're laughing at me, but, but you shouldn't because sometimes I have to, like you walk down the frozen aisle to get the pork chops. And that's a dangerous place to be uh, because apparently in Florida, when it's 70 degrees, people wear Arctic parkas here. So if you get stuck on a frozen aisle without a jacket, you would likely die and not ever get to your pig, right? I mean, just look at it. It's, it's amazing. It's going to get a little chilly this week, and it's funny watching people in, like, snow boots here, right? So let's be honest here. I I heard somebody say that's wrong, but it's totally true. So don't even bow up on it. You know it's right. This is what life on the farm looks like, right? For for most of us today. I mean, we don't have agrarian rhythms. We live in a modern industrialized world where all of the work of the farming happens someplace, but then there's an industrial system that brings it to our fingertips. And and the big difference is, is we pay a financial premium for it, right? However, watching this show has reacquainted me with the farm culture of the Bible. And it's given me a better perspective on why uh, one of the, the best descriptors in, Bible, in the Bible is this. There's a reason Jesus and other people use this analogy. 
one of the things farmers most often say on the show is that there's always more work on the farm to be done than there are people to get it done. There's always another 10, 12 hours of work. And this seems to be a common sentiment amongst those who farm. Very much so, like what Jesus says here. After he sees the shepherdless, he says, there's a big field and there are not enough laborers to work it. And so the better we understand the reality of what farming in the Bible looks like, the better equipped we'll be to understand our responsibility to Jesus in the modern church. And this is exactly what Jesus is trying to point out here. He's teaching us a kingdom principle in Matthew, and Jesus is the master of this. He takes a common thing in people's lives, not so common for us today because we don't farm, but he takes a very common thing, and then he makes a very uncommon connection to the kingdom of God. He basically says, here's how you you do this on earth, but I want to share with you that the way you do this on earth can reveal to you something about the way God wants something done on earth. He's saying the norm in his day and the one that has persisted to this very day is there is always going to be more work to do in God's church than there are likely going to be willing workers to do it. And when I say the church here, I'm using the church capital C. This is a a talk about restoration, certainly, but it's a talk about God's global church of which we are a, you know, we're a larger part of that family. However, he's also saying, and this is where we're going to make a shift this morning. Jesus doesn't say this and then say like, man, I guess I got to go back to heaven. It's all over. That's not the premise of this. He's also saying just because this is true, because there's always going to be things to do for the kingdom of God, it doesn't mean that we should see defeat to that reality. He tells us that we should pray for God to make that a different reality. He goes right to action. We should pray that God would raise up new workers for the field. He doesn't say, you know, now hang your head and go home in defeat. He says, we need to think differently. And we need to pray that God would change that reality. And we need to know when we say this, that part of the way God will answer the prayer to raise up folks to work the harvest fields, whether that is in our church, locally around the the globe, the greater boundaries of Port Orange, wherever it is, our prayer, one of them should be, is that we're asking God to raise up laborers to work his field. And you have to know when you pray that, you cannot exclude yourself from that. You cannot pray for God to raise up workers in the field and think you're not a part of the way God's going to answer that prayer. In other words, when we pray that, it is very likely God will ask us if we're committed to working the field ourselves. And so what this means for your life and for my life is that Jesus is calling you and I to be a person who changes the work of harvest reality. He doesn't call us to read this and go home. It didn't say Jesus was burdened for the masses and then went home. It said he, was, he saw this and he realized they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he immediately began to think about and command us to make changes there. Where there is a need, God calls us to act. Christ's command to us in Matthew is what I want to reissue today on the precipice of what I believe is going to be a great future of what is ahead of us. We've already had a great past. We wouldn't be here without it. But there is always more to do. There is always a future purpose and plan from God. There is always more field to till. And so on one hand through this command, I want us to be deeply encouraged by the fact that over these past years, our church family has truly had a way above, and I do not say this, I believe in honesty and veracity in all areas of life. I would not say this if this was not true. We have had an above average culture of commitment and health, exemplary in some ways, in all areas, okay? When it comes to working the field for Jesus inside this place and outside of this place, right now, this, this past year in 2016, we put a handful, a handful of people on a stipend to begin running ministries that outgrew the ability for lay people to lead. And you know this. We introduced them on our anniversary Sunday. But to this day, after seven years, there's, uh, there's just one pastor here, me. We have many of you functioning like pastors. But what it shows us is that you guys have owned the body. You've owned this idea of what Ephesians 4 teaches, the idea of shepherding the church, of, of saints being equipped for the work of the ministry. And so it's, I'm so happy every time I say this, that this is truly our church. 
church. It is God's church ultimately, but ours to steward. I never want us to forget that God has done amazing things here. We've seen people come to Jesus. We've seen them get baptized. We've seen people take next steps. We have received people from other places. We have sent them out to other places. God's hand of vibrancy and vitality has been here. And we need to be thankful for that. Totally thankful for that. But I also never want us to forget that there is always room for every one of us to grow individually and as a church body in this area. If we don't marinate our minds and hearts in this reality that Jesus te- teaches us here, if we don't heed the warning, then it is very likely we will slip in that area. And I don't ever want to see that happen. I know you don't either. So sometimes churches struggle with the unhealthy side of the work of harvest reality because there can actually be some good reasons for this. When you reach new people, sometimes it takes time to help them understand what Jesus is talking about here. If you think about it, to make a disciple, especially in a, in a rapidly secularizing culture, some of these ideas we talk about are not present in a person's mind at all. When you say a disciple, that, that word has a million different meanings. So sometimes discipling requires us to help people understand this. Sometimes, though, it also takes, there's another form of discipleship that has to take place. And it can be true for some of us that might be existing Christians. Maybe you've known for Jesus for a long time. And part of one of the challenges that we deal with in our modern world is the issue of consumption. Meaning, uh, by default, I mean, even our federal government basically decides uh, and and profits, uh, excuse me, companies, they dictate profits and health by how much we consume. They basically say the American people bought X amount of stuff this Christmas season. They consume this much and it indicates health in the economy, right? So consumption is like pushed on us on every level. But what I'm saying here is that some of us as Christians might actually consume more than we contribute. We might see God's church or his kingdom or the grace of Jesus as a commodity we consume solely. We see God as a great dispenser or a church, as a great dispenser of religious goods and services. And what happens there, this is what Jesus is talking about, is I'm not saying a church shouldn't even be providing some of this stuff. But I'm saying if we solely see the church or God's kingdom as a, as a cosmic dispenser of religious goods and services, then what happens is those who are walking around the field begin to take advantage of those who are working the field. There's an imbalance, and that's what Jesus talks about here and so sometimes for those of us who are in jesus we have we have some growth that has to take place and we recognize that the the premise of the christian faith one of the foundational ones is god gives his all to us by putting his son on the cross and there is not a period at the end of that sentence there is a comma god gives his all to us comma so that we can actually begin giving our all back to him so there is a a beauty in in receiving from god and giving back to him and that's the paradigm jesus talks about here And that's why Jesus makes it very clear that God's plan for his people is that we all work the field so we can help feed more people the gospel. We're not producing beets and cabbages here. We're producing gospel fruit. And that fruit is meant to be carried out of this room and fed to people who are without it. Because think about this. None of you in Jesus right now would be here unless somebody did that for you. Now, even though some of this work of harvest reality is present in every church, I want to share what will happen if we ever get to the place where we forget Jesus's words here. The needs of the church or the field will begin to grow, as he says, disproportionately greater than those working it. And when that happens, the faithful tend to get tired because the laborers will start to work harder to fill in the gaps of the field. And here's why they do that. Here's why those working the field tend to work harder. Um, And I know this. I've passed it now just shy of 20 years, and I have met a lot of amazing people serving God's kingdom. And there is a certain type of DNA present in those who work the field. And what happens is, is when they see need, they tend to own the need. And that's good to a certain degree. But what can happen at times is they can start doing more than they not only should be doing, but can be doing. And they do this because they love Jesus. 
They don't do this for accolade or self or personal punishment. They do this out of a nobility and a desire to please God. But what I'm telling you is that when that field imbalance gets too strong, that noble attitude becomes unsustainable. And over time, this type of person will exhaust themselves. And I'm telling you, if you read one of the promises of the gospel, exhaustion is not one of the promises. Now, tired, we'll talk about this in a minute. Tired at the end of a good day's work is one thing. But fatigue and death is not the promise of the gospel. Vibrancy and permanency, eternal life on this earth and the next one, the next, uh, next life we have, is the byproduct of true gospel living. So this is true for everybody, and it's even true for pastoral leadership and those leading your community groups and those working in our kids' ministry. Those who lead, uh, although at times they can have a much higher tolerance for it, nobody is exempt from this. But that's why burnout, I, I've shared this before, but on the, the pastoral side of things, um, I left seminary, I moved from New Orleans here in 2008, and my first, my first class I was told that they had us look around the room in our orientation. And they basically said there were about 65 of us, and they said about uh, 50% of you in five years won't be doing this anymore. That's the stat. And by three years, almost three-quarters are that. They're, they're out of the ministry, at least from the pastoral side of things. And I can tell you that's true from my peer groups. So think about this. We are, we're designed to work hard and to labor well, but not to labor towards death, right? And just being transparent, which is a high value here. It's one of our values. We want to be honest in all things because we feel like it's important. If you want to grow in Jesus, you need to be able to go to somebody here and say, listen, I got this going on. And you need to know that when you say that to somebody, you're going to be, you're going to be responded to with grace, affirmation, and a shoulder to help you bear the burden. That is one of the DNA values of our church. I'll tell you that more than any other of the nine years we've been leading restoration, you guys are thinking, well, you launched in October 10, 2010. We just celebrated our sixth anniversary. What do you mean nine years? Keep in mind, restoration, before we were on, on the ground here, um, we, we started interviewing, talking to, to people about this church in 2007. And in 2008, we made the move. And in 2010, we launched the church. So for my family and I, restoration has been a 10-year venture, which many of you got on board very early on in 2009 and 2010. Um, and this journey started for us truly in 2007, when my family moved from Florida, from my wife back to Florida, and for me too. This is the second time I've lived here. But there was a process for restoration before there actually even was a restoration. And I can tell you that over the years, we have been tired at times. It happens to all of us. But I want to share a distinction between this type of tired and the one I'm talking, I was talking about. It's a good type of tired. And I say this confidently, saying that I've really been asking God to help me figure this out this past year. Um, last year, we entered 2016 having to staff a lot of positions. It was a very fatiguing year for those of us leading. But the truth is that we staffed all those positions, and we entered 2017 with a great palette of amazing people. They're all going to be up on the website here very soon. They've been functioning for six months now, but we're, we're, we've made some major changes to what we're doing. And part of that is there has been a season where many of us have bore load. But what I want to say here is that tired, not meaning like in an exhausted, I want to take my ball and go home way, Tired in kind of a very thankful way for the, for the ways that God has worked and what he has done. I want you to think about it this way. It's kind of like when you put in a good day's work, whether that's in an office or a field or in a police cruiser or whatever you're doing. You guys have a myriad of vocations. But at the end of the day, what happens is, is you go home and you're tired, but you say, that was a good day. <laughs> I'm going to sleep really hard tonight, but I got a lot done and it did good things. That's the kind of tired I'm talking about right now. We have been tired to a certain degree, but with a growing hope, and I mean growing hope for the future of our church and the partnership we have with you to continue to work in this field. And so that's that I want to say something else right now. I want to say honestly right now that I'm not tired anymore, like not even in the good sense. Like I kind of feel like God jolted me with a 600 milligram caffeinated gospel shot. 
about six months ago. And it began changing. And I want to say that part of what I want to talk about now for us is how we all seek the Lord to begin thinking about this. Because more than ever, some of what today lays out, and this is the time of the year when we do it, God has given us a renewed vigor and clarity for what the future holds. And I'm here today to invite you to be a part of that with us. Us. As we embark on this next phase of ministry. Today is kind of the clarion call to begin mustering the troops. And some of you are already mustered. And some people are mustered right now. They're, they're doing this right now without even hearing it. And so this leads me to the three action steps I want you to pray about taking this morning to help us overcome the worker harvest issue Jesus warns us of in Matthew. For the remainder of our time today, I want to focus on God's field. Now, we've clearly defined the antagonist of the story. It's time for us to introduce the protagonist, the characters in the story that commit to defeating the problem. And that protagonist is us. God's grace is sufficient, but our, our lives are how the protagonist defeats the antagonist. That's us. And there are three things we can do to fight against it this year. So this week, I want you to begin this morning, but I want you to pray on that this week. Everything we're going to talk about right now, please pray about taking three steps that will move you towards a deeper level of love for Jesus and commitment to his mission at restoration. That's the difference here. I'm not even asking you to do something for our church. Not yet anyways. I'm asking you to do something for Jesus. Because if you will do something for Jesus, what you will find is stamina for the day in the field. If you directly look to the field without the power of Jesus, you will get tired very quickly. And that is a, that is a problematic belief. We think the gospel, our understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, shapes who we are and what we do for him. And so in this is, is a bit of both. It's a deeper recognition of who we are in God and how that becomes an authority to shape who we, uh, what, what we do for him. Okay? So this year we will focus on in dialogue about three key areas of mission and ministry. And through them, we want to continue to take a personal look and a corporate look at how we are doing when it comes to making disciples in our church and helping people to know Jesus in our spheres of influence. There is no priority here of order. Um, keep in mind, this is not like this doesn't devalue other things. I'm not going to talk about community groups today. But that does not mean we don't want you plugging into them. Those are options and availabilities. But here I'm saying this is the this is the drive. The first is this. We want to continue to connect with new people in our worship gathering on Sunday. And I want to explain why this is important. Um, we have a very particular theology of worship. And for a lot of churches today, worship is just simply a place you come to for 70 minutes and you sing and somebody speaks to you and then you go home. And it has become, in, in many places, the central point of what we do as Christians. And I'm here to tell you that it is a focal point of what we do as Christians. But worship gathered like this is not the only point. This wasn't even around at first when Jesus came to the earth, right? So what we have to do is make sure when we understand worship, we, what I want to say here is I don't want you to think I'm like going back on what I've been saying for seven years. And what I've been saying for seven years is that this is a place where God's family gathers and we invest in inviting people to come here. But the end game for the Christian is not this. This is a time where we get together for spiritual formation to live the other six days of our life out in the world. If we see this as the end-all collection point for Christianity, we have a problem. And so when I say we want to make it a priority to worship together and to invite people to this, is we want to continue to build a meaningful worship gathering. We're going to make investments in what we're doing here this year that honors God and helps people to grow in Jesus. And in the upcoming year, we want to ask you to consider to make it a priority to worship faithfully with us, to be here on a regular basis, to invest in the lives of the people that God puts in your life by inviting them to worship with us. And here is why. Just like in the book of Acts, we see this time as crucial to the church family. It is not a show. 
It is not just a performance. It is not just a talk. It has those elements, I guess. But if those elements are disconnected to its purpose, then we miss the mark of why God says we should do this. It is a spiritual formation. It is a time for us to grow in Jesus together as we worship God, study the scripture, love each other, and challenge each other to live on mission after we leave this place. Certainly your community groups are a big aid in that. This is where you go and process this stuff and you, you put some teeth into what we're talking about. But I'm here to tell you this is an important thing that we do. And we want it to be important to you so it will be important to other people. We want you to invite people to come and see the family here. Not to see a performance, but to see and experience the rhythms of who God is amongst us. And that's that I want to issue a caveat here. This is a priority, but it is very likely a, a, a very refined priority, which means this. It is most often going to be, I'm not saying 100% of the time, but I'm saying most likely the people who are going to be most receptive to this priority is going to be somebody who is already a Christian. Somebody who's maybe looking for a church family, somebody who's been disenfranchised from a church, somebody who might be hurt, or somebody who, what Paul would say, is like the God-fearer. They're a person who might not even know Jesus yet, but they have a lot of questions and thoughts, and they're truly actively seeking. This is going to be a place where somebody will be comfortable to become a part of, but not everybody, and we'll get to that in a second. So please know this is a good thing. It's a great thing, because we're praying for God. God has already given us an amazing group of people, but we're praying for God as people move into the area and people are looking for churches to help send us the people who fit the DNA here to help us do something greater than what we're already doing. We want to add on to the mission. We want God to send us people who are ready to make a difference in the world for his son. We want every Christian, whether it's this one or uh, this church or another one, to have a church family where they are properly being taught who God is. They are learning to love God and they're learning to, to love others as Jesus has loved them, to serve the neighbor. We feel it's important for every Christian to have a church family. And we recognize that our job is to steward this one and to make it a place where people feel comfortable to connect. So right now, I want to take a couple of minutes. And I want you to think about this uh, today. I want you to take just a quick moment and, and ask yourself very briefly. This is an idea for you to process, but it's an idea that I want you to really pray about. I'm not, we're not going to have a ton of time here, but I want you to take 15 or 20 seconds, and I want you to impulsively answer this question. Are you making it a priority to worship and grow with Jesus here on a consistent basis? And are you inviting people to this? And if you're sitting here saying, I don't know that I've ever actually asked anybody to be a part of this, then you have an answer. So take a moment of solitude, a quick one, and ask yourself that question. Now, as you move into this week, you, you likely at least have the beginning of an answer. And I want you to ask you to continue to pray about this. Okay? I want you to ask yourself if you are asking people to, in, to, to, if you're investing in them and inviting them to see the body of Christ at restoration. And we'll follow up on this next week. It's very important. Second thing is it, it works in tandem with the first. Because as you know, somebody who loves God is going to be more likely inclined to be around people who love God. But we also want to, you to know that there are plenty of people who don't know God at all. And God wants to know them. So we want to challenge you to be equipped and trained. This is a year where we do this in lots of forums, but we're going to do it in a very pointed one this year. We want to equip and train every person who wants to learn how to intentionally and meaningfully build relationships with people in your lives who do not know Jesus yet. And here's why this is important. This is not just about you know, helping people to find God. It's about asking those of you who are saying, you know, 
Um, I really want to take some next, next steps in my, my mental and kind of spiritual development in God. There are ideas and thoughts in the Bible I struggle with, and I really want to wrestle with some of these ideas, this being one of them. We want to create an intentional space where we actually gather you uh, and, and do like, you know, if you have a church background, I, I did not. I became a Christian in my 20s, so, but I, 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 got, I became a believer in a church that had like the old school midweek meeting where they were getting together to talk about very important ideas. Um, not necessarily like a, a, a disconnected prayer meeting without a purpose, not that that's a bad thing, but we want to get together to have intentional cluster meetings where we begin to help you guys understand. When we say what it means to invest in a person's life, we want you to have the tools to do that. And so here in Matthew, Jesus tells us, and in other places, it's God's greatest desire for people to hear about Jesus, to learn to believe in and trust in his grace and to pursue him for the rest of their days. If this wasn't the case, God wouldn't have sent Jesus to die for that reality. And listen to me here. All the other things God asks us to do, like to be righteous before him and to live holy lives, you don't do any of those things until you hit this step, right? It isn't like God's ultimate desire is for us to live holy. It is, but holiness comes through the conduit of knowing Jesus. You don't live before God in a holy way until you've been redeemed by his son, so it makes perfect logical and theological sense to say sometimes as Christians we jump the boat and we look at the world and we expect people to live in a way, but they're missing the purpose and the person of Jesus. And so hear me, there is no discipleship or disciple making without investing in a person to the point where you help them to answer the cardinal question. Who is Jesus and what does he mean in my life? And I want to say something very serious here. It is a known reality. That as a church, and this is true even individually as Christians, as churches begin to mature and stabilize, they tend to lose their fervor for seeing people find Jesus. You, we get comfortable with each other, and that's good. That's a part of the family. That's one of the dynamics of the family. But it is my prayer that we never get so comfortable here that we lose, or that we, we lose the fervor to share Christ or to help people grow in his grace. And by that I mean that's not even always through words. It's process for a lot of people. And here's why it's important that we don't lose the fervor. Jesus is too amazing a savior and hell is too great a consequence to hope that our neighbor, neighbors just stumble their way into God's loving arms. It just is. If we truly believe what scripture teaches us about God's desire to know us and the challenges we have and the consequences of not knowing him, there should be a Jesus like lots of sheep with no shepherd burden on our hearts. Has to be there. If it's in him, it should be in us. And that's why Jesus explicitly told us to bring his grace to our neighbor. And today I want to ask you to commit to that by asking yourself an honest question, one that I will ask you to revisit this week, one we will provide training for over this year, and one that we will affectionately coin the power of two. This is where we revisit this. I want you to ask yourself right now and answer this question if you can. Are there two people, that's all I'm asking for this year, are there two people in your life right now who are very far from God, that you are intentionally building a relationship with to share the grace of Jesus with. I'm not asking you, are there two people in your life that don't know God? There are in all of our lives. I'm asking you, are there two people who you have said, you know, God's burdened me for that sheep, that shepherdless sheep in the way that God burdened his son for the crowds? Ask yourself that. Do you have two people in your life right now? And then I want to say one other thing here when I'm done with this. It's, it's very likely that, rather impulsively, you could or could not identify two people. And at our church, we're not a church that preaches guilt. Because that's just not a good way to motivate anybody. But I want to say, if not, if, if you, there's nobody in your head right now, or there's somebody in your head that you've really not had a burden for, or there are two people in your head, and, and 
you know, you are act, laboring actively, all that I'm sure is present in this room. I want to say, being honest, that, that it's likely going to be the case for some of us, maybe even many of us, that there is nobody in our head. And I want to say that that's okay. Because six months ago, I came to this reality in my own life. I was so busy in working the affairs of God's church that I began to realize, like, I don't know that I actually have, I have acquaintances, I don't know God, but I don't know that I actually have relationships anymore with people that don't know the Lord. And so what I want to say is that's okay. It's not okay to persist in it, but it's okay to say this is one of the seasons that we have in life. And so over this next week, I want you to pray and ask God. If you know people already, then we put some blessed cards in your seat. You can notate that on them. Take that with you this week. There's a, a, a black card in your seat that allows you to, it's, it's a good tool for you to be able to think through and pray about who doesn't know Christ in your life and a rhythm for you to be able to help them understand who God is. Um, but what I want to say this week is pray about this because next week when you come back, it's going to be my genuine prayer that God, through you seeking him, has given you two people. Um, because I just don't know how we can claim fidelity to Jesus if we don't care about those who are without him. You know, that's just as important as all the other things God asks us to do. Lastly, uh, we want you to pray about this, about pursuing any opportunity God provides you to love and serve our church, neighbor and city. As you know, there are always needs here. Um, there, right now, there's an active need for uh, some kids, kids leaders, a teacher and a couple of helpers and a check-in person. Um, that's one of the most important things we do in our church. And so I say that there's, there's likely always going to be a place for you to serve the body. Sometimes there are very particular needs like kids at the present. And because we're a church that believes in innovation, there are likely ways for you to serve the body that we're not even doing right now. Meaning you might even have a gift or an ability that we're not even aware of. But because God's brought you here, you, you create a new space here. So what I want you to think about this year is as you're thinking about your servant, your, your love for God, um, we as restoration, when we talk about this idea, we want to be known as a blessing to the people of our city, wherever we are and wherever God leads us. And to this point, in the spheres of influence that God has us, that's how we're seen. I really do believe that we're not hurting anybody, that's for sure. And there are places where we have been the pointy end of the spear and bringing the care and the love of Jesus to people. And so the way you become a blessing like this is by praying about picking up your shovel and working the harvest field with your time and your resources. And I want to explain what I mean by this. Um, none of what we talked about earlier is going to happen if you don't actually recognize the responsibility Jesus calls you to to work the field. You don't share the gospel unless you work the field, right? It just doesn't happen. And so um, there are two main ways, and I've taught on this before, but I will revisit it today. There are two main ways that God asks you to serve him, and they are with your time and your talents, your gifts and your abilities and your resources. And these two items tend to be a bit controversial. In the modern Amer American world, for some Christians in an individualized country like ours, they're off limits. It's off limits when we begin to talk about time and money. However, they are not off limits in the Bible, and that's why it's important for us to talk about them here. And here's why. The idea of being a disciple means we're called to give our whole life to Jesus. That's the perpetual desire over the course of our life to give more and more to Jesus as we grow in him. And I want to remind you that, that being a disciple is not a decision we're forced to make. In this sense, Jesus is a bit of a gentleman, meaning what happens here is at some point in our lives, we volitionally make the choice to say, you, Jesus, you are Lord, I'm pursuing you. Okay? We're not choosing uh, to, to grow in our desire to give area, every area of our lives to Jesus if we're actually withholding things from him. And here's why uh, this particular idea of our time and our resources can be so challenging for people. I've said this before, personal time and resources are two of the most sacred and privatized commodities in the life of an American. Not surprisingly, in the scripture, they're the two things that we're also told are some of the greatest idols we can fall into. Meaning, they can replace Jesus as the king of your life. Because very commonly, we can be ruled by time and money. We're in tow to the clock. Or we're in tow to the, to, the, to the buck, right? We're in tow to debt. Or, or kind of, we're, money is essentially no longer a tool that serves us. 
Uh, it's a tool that we serve. As opposed to seeing money and time as tools to serve God, to sustain ourselves, and to bless others. And so in light of this, we shouldn't be surprised that God unashamedly asks us to set aside some of these things that matter most to us for him. In the same way that he gave up something that mattered most to him for us, his son's life on the cross. And so for the Christian, the way you use your time, talents, and treasure is a direct reflection of how deeply you understand Jesus' love. And that's why we're called to follow him. We're called to, to think about sacrificial generosity with our time, our talents, and our, tre- our treasures. That doesn't just mean in the church. That means wherever God provides spaces for you to bless people, we should be doing it. And the Bible's clear. He's, it's got a great amount to say about our work in God's kingdom. And that's why every single one of us has given us a particular gift, at least one. God says, listen, I want you to work the field, and I want you to use your life for the field, and I'm going to give you a tool to do it. And when we look at our body as a whole, this is another place we're going to provide training for this year. Each one of us is given a gift or an ability to serve God. Because cumulatively, cumulatively what happens is that if you've got the gift of administration or service or hospitality, or teaching, whatever it is, when we work together, we become um, the manifest presence of Jesus. All of our gifts individually now become Jesus corporately. We minister with the same authority and power he has. If we will recognize what God has bestowed upon us and called us to use. And so this is the subject we're going to talk about this year. And it's a place where if you're saying, I don't even know what my spiritual gift is. What is that? Like, do I pick that up at the welcome desk on the way out? Whatever that is, we want you to know that we're here to help you figure that out. One of the ways we determine as Christians how serious we are about following Jesus is by looking what we spend our time doing. And I will say, if we, if we have little or no concern to use our gifts to minister to the physical and spiritual needs of others, it really does say something about what matters most to us in life. And the, the same is true when we look at our resources, our money. And typically, when we talk about tithing or money here, which is pretty rare. I mean, if you're here today where we talk about money, this is not a very common thing for us. Um, I give you this disclaimer uh, because some of you might be saying, well, I, I love this church because we don't get hit with like a you know, a Bible stick each week, and that's important for us. But when, when it comes to money, I, I, I make this claim every time. It's not that we don't talk about finances and money and generosity here. Um, it's just that we want to talk about it always. When we do, because it's in Scripture, when we do, we want to talk about it in a way that honors God. And in some ways, I wonder if we've been too silent on this subject over the years. And I've drawn this conclusion because some of you have said this. Actually, a great many of you have said this. Um, I've had tons of conversation with you all where people have outright said, you want to talk about money because the concept of generous living is foreign to you, or maybe you have a desire to be generous, but you're just ruined by debt, or you don't understand what the Bible actually teaches about it, or you want to be generous, but you have a real need to learn some gospel principles and how to use your money for God's purposes. When we talk about money here, we're not just talking about tithing. We're talking about seeing our whole life as something we use for God. And this year, as we talk about time, talents, and treasures, we want to provide training for you, but we also want you to begin asking the essential question, uh, are you supporting God's kingdom with these tools? Is this something that you feel is on limits or off limits to God? And I need you to hear, if you hear anything I say with this closing statement, please hear this. I'm not saying this out of desperation. I'm not saying what I'm saying this morning because we don't have anybody doing anything and you know we're kind of tanking financially. That's not ever been our story. We, because of the faithfulness, the track record of what God has already put in us, we finished again in the black this year. We, we, we meet our budget every year. God has been good to us there. And God always provides our needs. So I'm not, I'm not here begging as much as I'm saying, t- now is the time to ask yourself, are you contributing to that? 
Are you really shaking it up for God's world and God's kingdom here and out there? Our church family has always had a strong faithfulness in these areas. And I want to thank you for that. And I want us to give thanks for that. Because it shows me that I'm not making this stuff up. It shows me that God has etched this priority in our hearts. But I also want you to challenge, I want to challenge you to pray about whether or not you know, you're using time, talent, and treasure in such a way that God can use you mightily this year. Because that's our prayer. That God would do some pretty great stuff this year at Restoration. And Restoration is not just the name of a church. It's the representative name of a group of people. That's us. And I want you to pray about this now as we move into response time. So as we close this morning, here's where I leave you. We move into a new year of ministry and mission. Please know we cannot, nor does God desire to accomplish this without you. Can God accomplish this without us? Absolutely. But he does not choose to accomplish this without us. He sets us apart for these areas. He has always had us as a part of his plan. So we should recognize that invitation. We should recognize we've been set apart for purposes that are great. And we should be hoping and praying, uh, really, I am hoping and praying, that you will re-accept, except for the first time, or accept more concretely, the invitation to serve God, to love each other and Him and to serve Him well, to make goals a reality this year. It's my prayer that we would really reflect on what God has done through us in Jesus, for us in Jesus, and that we would honestly let God speak to us now about our understanding of his sacrifice for us, what it means now in light of our sacrifice for him. So as we close, ask yourself, I'll leave you with these two questions every week. What is Jesus saying to you about following him? And what are you going to do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your son. I know we're running a little long today, but I pray that the importance of this message would really resonate. And we want to say that for these next couple of minutes, as we, as we really have a brief time of contemplation and reflection, that you would wire these ideas deeply into our hearts and that we would take home this week these three challenge points and ask ourselves honestly, knowing that where we are strong in these areas, you will, Father, you will affirm us. And where we have areas to grow, you will guide us. I pray that we would know each one of us is likely strong and weak in all of what we've talked about today. But that your desire is for us to grow in the goodness and the grace of the knowledge of your son Jesus. So may we not apply a personal judgment on ourselves so where we are or are not this week. May we give thanks for the way you've worked in our lives and ask you, God, to continue to work in our lives. And I pray, Lord, now as we have a couple of minutes of contemplation and reflection, that you would give us just a, a space and an opportunity to do direct some, some direct business with you, some direct conversation with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.